his standard of righteousness is not outward, legalistic, one that breeds hypocrisy. No, it's one that exceeds anything that man could ever dream of or achieve. You're listening to the sermon series, Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom, preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. God of justice and mercy, we thank you for another occasion to come together and to open your word of truth, to receive from your precious revelation. We ask that you would impart to us grace and truth, not only to our hearts, but Lord, as those who have ears that would hear, we pray that our lives would line up in submission to your eternal word. May we know your truth and may the truth set us free today. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Many of you may be familiar with a very controversial pastor named Andy Stanley. Stanley is the son of the well-known pastor and Bible teacher Charles Stanley. You can still hear his voice and his teaching on the radio even though he passed away earlier this year in April. Andy, who is Charles Stanley's son, is the pastor of North Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And in the last few years, he has been progressing, which is the wrong word, it's digressing, away from sound Orthodox Christianity. In more recent days, Andy Stanley hosted a conference where he platformed two gay Christians, uh, two men married to one another. And at this conference, he uh, made it very plain that he is capitulating the gospel, dissolving it uh, to serve the gay community. And his argument there was that Jesus never drew lines, he only drew circles. This unraveling away from the gospel in Stanley's ministry did not just happen overnight, it didn't happen in a vacuum. Back in 2018, he preached a sermon where he argued that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. His argument was, didn't Peter, didn't James... Didn't Paul do this exact thing at the Jerusalem council or conference in Acts 15? And when pressed a little bit by uh, Orthodox believers, other faithful pastors, he doubled down on his position in a book called Irresistible. And in this book, he argues that Christians should uh, completely abandon the Old Testament. On page 136, he says this, and you've seen lots of quotes that go on this screen. It's, it's tough for me to put this quote up here this morning, but he says this, the 10 commandments have no authority over you, none. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the 10 commandments, end quote. Just think of what he's saying here. He's saying essentially, hey, don't worry about worshiping the one true God. You shouldn't do that. Don't keep the Sabbath holy. Don't honor the name of God. Don't worry about honoring your father and mother. Uh, Certainly, there's no law that says do not lie and do not covet. And so my admonition to you as a follower of Jesus Christ is unhitch from Andy Stanley. Uh, He is treading down a heretical path, the heretical path of Marcion and the uh, folly of Fosdick. Marcion and Fosdick were both two men separated by many, many years who both considered the Old Testament to be repugnant, to be intellectually ruinous, to quote one of them, and to be morally debilitating. Now, he's not the only, Stanley's not the only preacher who's toyed with this idea of the law being 
uh, something we don't understand. Another famous internet preacher, Stephen Furtick, said in 2016 in a sermon, God broke the law for love. Uh, speaking of pastors, you should unhitch from. Uh, but these pop culture pastors are not the only ones who get the law of God wrong or are confused about what do we do with the law? Not only them, but also the followers of Jesus and many people today. What do we do with the law? And generally, there are two answers to that question. Generally two. The first is abandon it completely. That's Stanley's position. And this is known as antinomianism. We'll get into this today. The other on the flip side of that is what do we do with the law? We, com- we keep it completely because this is how we receive grace. The first says, hey, we're under grace. There is no law. The second says, this is how we obtain grace, legalism. And neither of these will do. Amen. This morning, we continue our study of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, where we get to the heart of his message. This section that we're looking at this morning beginning here in verse 17 to to the end of chapter five is really the heartbeat of the sermon and it regards the ethic, the kingdom ethic, the moral ethic, if you would, of God's kingdom. And so for the next four weeks, we'll be diving into this content together, uh, starting today in verse 17 and for four weeks, we'll continue through uh, the rest of chapter five. But as we look at these four verses this morning, we have four points that I'd love for you to jot down on the screen. The first is the fulfillment of the law. In verse 17, we're going to see how Jesus explains how the Old Testament law is essentially fulfilled in him. And then in verse 18, we're going to see the fidelity of the scriptures. We're going to see how the the scriptures are trustworthy uh, and that this trustworthiness is joyfully acknowledged in Christ's kingdom. Then in verse 19, we'll see the folly of antinomianism. We'll, We'll define that today. Maybe you've never heard that term, but we'll learn the dangers of relaxing the law and teaching others this false doctrine. And finally, we'll see the fundamentals of righteousness in verse 20 and see how the legalism demonstrated by the scribes and Pharisees is opposed to the gospel. And and it's my prayer today. This is, I I told the group earlier this morning when we prayed, there are some some meals that mom or dad prepares that uh, that are easy, that are quick, and they're easy to eat. And there are other meals that take a long time. Mom's in the kitchen for hours and hours, maybe days. And, and though it doesn't take days to eat, it takes a little longer to chew and digest. And, and that's what we're going to be doing today. I, I need you to not be yawning. Hopefully you've had your coffee. This morning we have to be uh, digging a little bit deeper in our uh, attention span. And my prayer for us by the end today and by the end of these four weeks is that we'd have a new or renewed appreciation for the old covenant for the law, and that we would also grow in our joyful obedience to the law. So to begin, let's look at verse 17 and the fulfillment of the law. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is continuing to teach from this elevated plain in Galilee. His disciples are near him. The crowds are listening in closely, and now he addresses what to do with the law, and he says, and the prophets, or or the prophets. Now, when he says law or the prophets, he's not referring only to the Ten Commandments or only the verses that outline the Mosaic law. Uh, He's not just saying just those little few verses and just Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc., 
This is a summary statement, law or the prophets. In fact, on the screen, you can see Jesus does this a lot. Uh, you can take a picture of that, or if you're very quick at writing, you can jot all of those down. But Jesus, throughout the scriptures, will, will summarize everything by saying the law and the prophets, or the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he says in Luke 24, or just the law, uh, as we see in the next verse, verse 18. So notice what Jesus says. He says, do not think I've come to abolish what? The entirety of what is written from Genesis to Malachi. If you would, circle or highlight that word abolish. This word abolish means to loosen or to, to undo or even to dissolve. But in most uses, it means it's a little stronger than that, than just loosen. It means to demolish, to destroy, or to dismantle. This provides us the mental picture of someone intentionally tearing a building down brick by brick. My wife, Jen, is an interior designer and I've been involved in a few projects, though you know I'm not uh, someone who's really great with my hands. I like to write sermons about uh, working with your hands. Some of you men are very skilled at this. Uh, and yet, I'm still invited to come out on demo day uh, because you don't need a lot of precision with demo day. You just need uh, an arm and a sledgehammer. And so you have way too much caffeine and you're encouraged to just smash stuff. And so this is the word that Jesus is using. He, he's using the word that in our mind brings us to demo day, to dismantle, to tear down, to demolish, to abolish. You could say unhitch. And notice that Jesus is saying, I've not come to do that to the law. I didn't come to destroy the law, to tear it down, to loosen it. No, but to fulfill it. Now circle that word. This word fulfill means to fill up to the full. Fulfill or fill full. And one person points out this means to unfold them or embody them in living form and also to enshrine them in the reverence, affection, and character of men. Jesus says, I have come not to get rid of the law. No, I've actually come to fill it to the full. When we think about the law, there are three helpful ways to distinguish it. Calvin provides these for us, and these are in many of our confessions. Uh, but when we think about the law, I want you to jot these down. And, and remember, there are, when we talk about the law, we're talking about three things. First, the moral law. This is what is written on men's heart, and it's based on the character of God. Uh, this is, in its simplest form, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. But then we have the ceremonial law. And this is essentially how the nation of Israel was called to worship God. There were ceremonies they were to keep in uh, their nation. But then we come to the civil or the judicial law, and, and this represents Israel as a theocracy. Uh, and, and so as the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, and, and this comes first, uh, they were written on tablets of stone. They were placed inside of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and, and this has set them apart as very important. Uh, God even told Israel, obedience is greater than sacrifice. So uh, this essentially elevates the moral law. The ceremonial law, though, is that instruction on, on the sacrifices, on the tabernacle, on the days of feasting. And then the civil judicial law helped Israel what to know as a nation to do when people broke the moral law. What do we do? What's the follow-up? And uh, so even earlier than the Reformation, back to Aquinas, back even to perhaps Augustine, even somebody back to the second century, 
there was an understanding of these three distinctions, or at least of two big distinctions, the moral precepts and the symbolic precepts, at least the two distinguishing marks between the two. And the moral law continues today because of the character and nature of God. But when we think about the civil law, the ceremonial law, we realize this is for Israel as a nation and the ceremonial law with all the shadows and types of Christ in heaven are fulfilled in him. And here's what one person said. They said, quote, by fulfilling the law, some aspects of Old Testament legislation were to be rendered obsolete. For example, the sacrifices and ceremonies associated with redemption and atonement were, in fact, to be done away with. We don't continue to offer the blood of bulls and goats because Christ fulfilled that once for all. And they say, uh, because Jesus came to fulfill them and to usher in perfect righteousness, end quote. Uh, You can jot down Hebrews 8, 13. This tells us in the new covenant, Jesus makes these aspects of the old covenant obsolete. Uh, Not the moral precepts, which are rooted in loving God and loving one's neighbor, but the civil, the ceremonial ones, which find their true fulfillment in him. In fact, in Romans 10, 4, Paul says, if you remember our study in Romans, we came to this uh, after uh, this incredible section in Romans 9, but Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And the word end there from our Roman study doesn't mean end like termination, like, hey, you've come to the end of your job, you're fired. It's more that Christ is the goal. He's the aim. He's the destination. Uh, the law had always been pointing ahead to him, and now Christ is the fulfillment of it. So, uh, Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law in a variety of ways. In his revelation, as Jesus communicates doctrine and truth, he fulfills the doctrinal teachings of the law and the prophets. In his person, in the person of Christ, he fulfills the predictive prophecy of the law and the prophets. He's the substance of the shadow. In Luke 24, an incredible Bible study I wish that I was privy to, Jesus teaches those people on the road to Emmaus all that was written in the scriptures regarding him. He's the fulfillment of those scriptures. But in his obedience, Jesus also fulfilled the moral and the legal demands of the law and the prophets. And in his death, Jesus fulfills the penalty of the law and the prophets by dying as our gracious substitute. Jesus says, You you may misunderstand that I'm healing on the Sabbath. You may misunderstand that my disciples eventually wash with or eat with unwashed hands, but don't think at all that I've come to relax or abolish the law. No, I've actually come to fulfill them. So we come to our second point in verse 18. And on this point, we see the fidelity of the scriptures. Notice what Jesus says, for truly I say to you, this means you might want to pay attention. Jesus has something very important to say. And he says, until heaven and earth pass away. Has that happened yet? No, of course not. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Some of you may have a different translation than the English Standard Version. And your translation uh, may say, one jot or tittle. Uh, That's old English, one jot or tittle. And I guarantee you did not use that this week in the office in any sort of correspondence. A jot or a tittle is a small uh, mark in Hebrew. It's like the the slightest uh, ink blot. Uh, An iota is the Greek equivalent of our English letter I. But when you write it out, an iota is the smallest little pen stroke. 
If you were using English, I could see Jesus saying, not the smallest dot above the letter I, or the tiniest little comma will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Notice what he's getting at. This is incredible. Jesus is speaking to the unshakable nature of the scriptures. And in case there's any doubt, Jesus says, in relation to time, in other words, in this current age, the scriptures will never fail. Doesn't that give you great faith this morning? That not a single, even the tiniest bit of the law of the word of God will fail. That should bring us great encouragement. None of the law, none of what is written of God will come to an end until it's found its accomplishment in Christ. Do you think Jesus had a high regard for the scriptures? This morning, I'd love for you to jot this down. Jesus believed at least eight important truths about God's word. These are very important for us to hold to. And by the way, these would be the things that uh, the progressive church, air quotes, uh, want to run from, that want to dismantle. And so these, we need to have a lock on these as believers. So uh, number one, Jesus believed in the inspiration of the scriptures, that the word is from God. Matthew 4, 4, remember Jesus's temptation just a few weeks back? He quotes scripture and says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but what? On every word that comes that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus believed in the inspiration of the scripture. Secondly, Jesus believed in the authority of the scripture. That is that the word is our rule of faith and practice. In Matthew 15, as we'll come to uh, in a long time from now, we'll see the Pharisees and scribes coming to Jesus and they're complaining. Your followers, your disciples don't follow our tradition. And, and Jesus says this, wait, why do you break the command of God for the sake of tradition? In other words, the tradition's not the highest authority. The scripture is. The word is our rule of faith and practice, not man-made rules. So Jesus believed in the authority of the scriptures. Thirdly, Jesus believed in the immutability of the scriptures. That is that the word is unchangeable. Uh, John 10, he says, the scriptures cannot be broken. That's wonderful, wonderful news for us. Here he says, not even the smallest or most inconsequential part of the law will pass away. The word is immutable. Fourthly, Jesus believed in the historicity. There's a mouthful. The historicity of of the scriptures. The word is historically accurate. I have some people in my life that would say, well, I think Adam is sort of symbolic. He's not literal. And I would say to you, in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus is confronted by Pharisees who are trying to test him about marriage. And he speaks of a literal Adam and Eve. His whole point is it was not that way in the beginning. God created them, male and female, in the beginning. His whole point is predicated on a historical Adam and Eve. Jesus believed in the historicity of the Genesis account. But number five, Jesus believed in the inerrancy of scripture, that the word is without error. It's not directly implied, it's a little um, um, implicit, not explicit, but in John 17, 17, as Jesus prays to the Father, he asked that the Father would sanctify his disciples in truth because your word is truth. If God's word is true, if it's sanctifying truth or since it's sanctifying truth, it cannot be filled with untruths. Jesus believed in the inerrancy of scripture. Uh, number six, Jesus believed in the efficacy of scripture. That is, the word is effective. 
In John chapter 8, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Then you'll know the truth. You know the rest of this. The truth will what? Very good. The truth will set you free. The truth is effective. It's efficacious. It will produce what it was intended to do. We read that in Isaiah as well. Jesus, number seven, believed in the sufficiency of scripture, that the word is enough. In Matthew 22, the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, they come and they challenge Jesus with a silly question about marriage. And his rebuttal is, you are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, he answers their practical problem with scripture's sufficient answer. And so if scripture's sufficient, then in the church, we don't need gimmicks. We don't need worldly wisdom when the word is sufficient. The word is enough. And finally, number eight, Jesus believed in the Christology of the scriptures, that the word reveals the Christ. I just mentioned Luke 24 after his resurrection. But in John chapter five, he also to the Pharisees said, you search the scriptures to find life, but you don't realize they testify about me. And yet you're not coming to me to find life. And so Jesus believed in the sufficiency, in the power, in the authority in the inerrancy of the scripture. Jesus quotes the Old Testament at least 78 times in his teachings. That's a low ball figure. It's estimated that's much higher than that. Not only in his teachings, but in his discussions with religious leaders and with others. And so to suggest anything in the zip code of saying that Jesus didn't trust the scriptures is as blasphemous and false as it gets. Jesus here affirms that not a single stroke in any of the law will pass away until all is accomplished. Now, let's look at our third point and dig a little bit into this idea of antinomianism. Verse 19, Jesus here says, therefore, so in light of this truth, in light of the fact that I fulfill the law, in in light of the fact that none of the law will pass away until it's accomplished, therefore, here's now the application for us, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But, so that's the negative, but the positive is whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So note with me here, Jesus moves this into the arenas of practice and of preaching, of personal duty and of public teaching. Now, if you look at the word relax here, uh, the word relax can be translated loosen, untie, or dissolve. It's very similar to this idea of abolishing. It's it's a similar word. Uh, But the idea here is a wrong attitude towards God's commands. A wrong attitude equals a low position in the kingdom. Notice he says least in the kingdom. But to do anything but affirm the teaching of scripture, even with what could be considered the least commandment. Well, that's just one of the least commandments. It's to be yourself considered least. And this attitude of lessening, of weakening, of loosening, of unhitching from the Old Testament is what we call antinomianism. The word antinomianism means opposed to law or against law. Anti means against, nomos is the Greek for the law. 
I like what A.W. Tozer says, and I have some quotes here to help us navigate some of this. Uh, Tozer said, quote, antinomianism is the doctrine of grace. So some may mean well when they talk about the law and grace. It's the doctrine of grace carried by uncorrected logic to the point of absurdity. It takes the teaching of justification by faith and twists it into deformity, end quote. Now, we believe that we are saved. We're, we're in Reformation Month, the five solos. We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Yes and amen. Faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. And we have to understand that. As Spurgeon said this, quote, we are not against the law of God. We believe it is no longer binding on us as the covenant of salvation, but we have nothing to say against it. And he quotes Romans 7, the law is holy. We are carnal, sold under sin, end quote. Ernie Reisinger would rightly assert, we're free from the penalties of the law, but not the precepts of the law. So we're not under law in order to be saved. But now that we are saved, we're not to just cast off the law as unnecessary. You following me? Okay, a few people are. Philip Hughes says this. Philip Hughes says, quote, the difference between the old and the new covenants, listen to this, is that under the old, that law is written on tablets of stone, confronting man as an external ordinance and condemning him because of his failure through sin to obey its commandments. Whereas under the new, the law is written internally within the redeemed heart by the dynamic regenerating work of the Holy Spirit so that through faith in Christ, the only lawkeeper, an inward experience of his power, man no longer hates but loves God's law and is enabled to fulfill its precepts, end quote. Jesus says those who dismiss, who relax, who dissolve the law are called least in the kingdom. But there's a positive side. He, He says, but whoever does them, whoever teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom. So this involves practice and preaching. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were those who preached the letter of the law, but they didn't practice the spirit of the law. Next week, we'll see the first two examples of laws that Jesus speaks about. And if you want to read ahead, we're going to look at that section from verses 21 through 26. But notice what he's saying here. If you want to be considered great, in the kingdom, and, and I do. I want to be considered great. I don't want to, who of us wants to be in the pecking order of least in the kingdom? Well, there's Joe over there. We're glad he made it, but he's the least in the kingdom. And we're, we're being a bit silly here. That's, I don't think gonna be a thing. There's no pecking order. We're all saved by grace, but I don't want to be called least in the kingdom. I want to be called great. And listen to what John MacArthur says about greatness. He says, quote, greatness is not determined. This is wonderful news. It's not determined by gifts, success, popularity, reputation, or size of ministry, but by a believer's view of scripture as revealed in his life and teaching. Jesus' promise is not simply to great teachers such as Paul or Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Wesley, or Spurgeon. His promise applies to every believer who teaches others to obey God's word by faithfully, carefully, and lovingly living by and speaking of that word. Every believer does not have the gift of teaching, the deep doctrines of scripture, but every believer is called and is able to teach the right attitude toward it, end quote. Are you great in the kingdom? You don't have to have a ministry and a platform. You don't have to have a great church 
of a great size. You simply need to love the law of God, the word of God, and to teach others to know and love God's word. And so the folly of antinomianism is to relax, to lessen, to abolish, to cast off, to even have hatred towards God's law. And in so doing, we find that we're least. Now we come to verse 20 in this fourth idea of the fundamentals of righteousness. And Jesus goes on uh, to say, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He just talked about being great in the kingdom or least in the kingdom. Now he's saying, you're not even going to enter the kingdom. So, so now we, we go all the way back to the entry point of the kingdom. And notice the qualifying mark is that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, if you have a pen, circle, highlight the word uh, or underline the word exceeds. The word here means to abound like a river overflowing its banks. Jesus is saying, your righteousness must overwhelmingly surpass that of the rabbis. It must overwhelmingly flow beyond the righteousness of those who have been separated out from mainstream Jewish life in their strict adherence of the law. Now, is this a joke? Is Jesus meaning this literally or figuratively? How in the world could anyone exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Uh, if you've never heard of these two groups, these were men who kept the law meticulously. They were so careful to keep the letter of the law. They would even, from their spice gardens, tie the smallest leaf off of their mint plants. If they were walking along the street and they find a coin on the ground, they would pick up that coin and be careful not to pocket it, but to make sure that a portion of that coin, however that's possible, would be tithed to the temple treasury. They would travel land and sea to just make one single convert. And they diligently studied and sought to uphold every word that came from God's mouth. How in the world could our righteousness exceed such minute precision? When Jesus says your righteousness must exceed theirs, he's not talking about a matter of degree, but of kind. In other words, here's what he's not saying. You need an overflow of more of that same kind of righteousness. No, he's saying you need a better kind of righteousness. There's a kind of righteousness that's under the law, and there's a kind of righteousness that comes from God. Paul said in Philippians 3, 4, and 6, he said, quote, if anyone else thinks he has a reason or a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. As to righteousness under the law, he says, I'm blameless. But then in verse 9, he says this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on on faith. The righteousness Christ is getting at here is not from the law, it's not through the law, but it's through faith. Paul would go on in Romans chapter 3 to say, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is an external righteousness in one sense. It comes to us from the outside 
but it doesn't stay external. It's not just doing the right things by the letter of the law. Keep all of the commandments perfectly. No, this is about upholding the spirit of the law by the spirit of God. God would say through Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The problem with the Pharisees and the scribes was not their external righteousness under the law. It was that it was not internal. It was not by faith. Remember, Jesus says at one point, these men were like whitewashed tombs. Have you ever been to a cemetery? And you see the externals. It's very beautiful. There's, there's uh, landscape. Uh, there's fresh paint often. There's roses that are left graveside. It's a very beautiful and quiet place externally. But internally, inside of those tombs, there is nothing but decay and death. And that's what Jesus uses. That's the analogy to describe these men. Outwardly, they look beautiful, wonderful, perfect moral obedience. On the inside, there's death and there's wickedness. In fact, in the next six examples, the rest of chapter five, Jesus begins to unpack this idea of internal righteousness, of having the law of God written on the heart rather than just externally. You've heard that it was said is gonna be his quote. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And we'll begin that study next week together. But I just want you to notice with me, nowhere in this section, nor in anything that Jesus teaches, does he ever condemn the Pharisees for caring too much about the law. He never says, you guys care too much about obedience. The problem is that they didn't follow the spirit of the law. And they felt by keeping the law, they were justified. Paul would say to the church in Galatia, if righteousness could be attained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And so in a word, these men were legalists. Now, chances are you definitely have heard the word legalistic and you may have thrown that word around. Uh, the word is used a lot and it's misused a lot. And so let's take a moment, make sure we define legalism correctly. Uh, legalism or being legalistic could be one of three things. Most of the time it's meant salvation by works. That means I am saved by doing things and that is legalistic. But it can also mean, secondly, adding man-made human rules and traditions to God's word. And we see that a lot with these Pharisees. They were hoping to be saved by their works and they also added man-made human rules and traditions. But thirdly, it also can describe someone who has outward obedience, but it's only motivated by drudgery. And, and honestly, sometimes that defines our Christian life as teenagers, as children. If we don't understand the spirit of the law, we're just obeying outwardly. We are being obedient, but it's not, it's not motivated by joy, it's motivated by drudgery. You've heard of the story of the little boy, mom says, sit down, we're driving. And he says, I'll sit down, but I'm standing up in my heart. It's that sort of, that sort of drudgery and someone needs a spanking. <laughs> it's caring about God's law. But see, legalism is not um, caring about God's law and being careful to obey it in a way that pleases him. That's not legalism, that's just obedience. I think sometimes people say, oh, you're trying to keep God's law, you're just a legalist. No, I'm actually just a Christian wanting to obey, wanting to please God. And the Pharisees cared only about the minutia of the law. And Jesus said, you're overlooking the weightier matters like justice and mercy. And so we need to be careful because we can follow this, 
mindset of being legalistic, of, of adding man-made human rules and traditions, or just seeking outward obedience when it's not motivated by joy and love, it's motivated by drudgery. And many legalists are angry about someone's outfit being inappropriate by their standards, but they aren't always addressing the heart of immodesty. They aim for the fashion rather than the person's faith. Uh, many legalists would say, we are not to smoke cigars, we're not to go and watch movie, uh, moving pictures. Uh, but the sin of gossip, the sin of envy is still alive in their own hearts. There's long lists that are not scriptural, they're not biblical, and these lists are added alongside God's infallible word. And so if the antinomian says, dismiss the law completely because we have grace, well, the legalist says, follow the law completely because this is how we obtain grace. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I have fulfilled the law. I have fulfilled it completely, and by my grace, I call you to follow the spirit and letter of the law by faith and by my Holy Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson says it well. He says, quote, Jesus did not weaken the law. On the contrary, he led it out of the cage in which the Pharisees had imprisoned it, allowing it to pounce on our secret thoughts and motives and tear to pieces our bland assumption that we are able to keep it in our own strength, end quote. Amen. The new believer, some of you are new believers, the new believer who's justified by faith, who receives the imputed righteousness of Christ, has a righteousness that far exceeds the scrupulous scribe and the fastidious Pharisee because it's an alien, more excellent righteousness than anything that could come from the law. That's glorious good news. And so we see Jesus has not come to abolish, to lessen the law, but to fulfill it. We see how he cherished scripture, how he denounced anyone in the kingdom who would practice or teach any contrary view. And we learned that his standard of righteousness is not outward, legalistic, one that breeds hypocrisy. No, it's one that exceeds anything that man could ever dream up or achieve. And so as we look at, uh, to apply this important and heavy and deep section of scripture, I wanna share a story with you. Uh, I drive a glorious secondhand Kia uh, it has only been previously owned by one owner, and he happened to be a snowbird. Uh, he only drove this little car to the golf course and to the boat ramp. And so it's a 2006 with 80,000 miles. That's amazing. By the way, if you want to buy it from me, uh, I have the title. <laughs> now, this car never left the state of Florida, and the uh, owner sold it to me with the original tire still on it. And so one thing I knew is that I'm getting a car that's gonna, it's gonna need some upgrades soon. It's gonna need new battery, new tires. It's gonna need um, like new belts, that's coming. And it already has begun coming. Uh, and recently, a, a few months ago, I started noticing, it, it started pulling to the right really strongly. As it was pulling to the right, I found that I had to adjust the wheel a little bit. Otherwise, if I took my hands off the wheel for any reason, to eat Krispy Kremes on the way to church, any reason, I would immediately hit the right side of the road. Any sad bicyclist, you know, would be taken out and I would crash into a ditch on the right side of the road. And what's interesting is um, I was teaching my daughter, London, how to drive and she was using my car to learn. And so she was used to the pull to the right. And, and so when she got her first car, the first time we drove it, we test drove it, she said, oh my goodness, and she didn't have to overcompensate and drive to the left. She literally said, it's centered. 
the, the, the steering wheel is centered. And I tell you that story because as we think about these two extremes, antinomianism, and we think about legalism, I just want to make this point that antinomianism isn't the opposite of legalism. Both of these are the opposite of the gospel. The gospel empowers us to keep the car centered and not to veer to extremes, either to the left or to the right. As we think about these things, we realize we all tend to pull to the right or to the left. And sometimes, many of us in our Christian life, we go both extremes in a matter of months. But the truth is that Christ has saved us by grace through faith, and this does result in works. He's prepared those in advance for us. And we obey not for faith, but from faith. And we find that Christ has granted us the joy and the freedom of a right relationship with the Father, not predicated on rule keeping, but on sonship. We learn Christ has imputed to us his perfect righteousness that far exceeds any external righteousness. And that we, by faith, don't have to keep the perfect checklist in our perfection as humans because if that's the truth, we've already failed. No, for the believer, our inward obedience is now empowered by the Holy Spirit and it's motivated by our love for our Father. So believer, in light of all these things, don't unhitch from the Old Testament. Don't despise the law, but echo the psalmist who declared, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day uh, and night, all day long. As a people group who have received God's word in our native language, in our heart language. May we not take it for granted, but may we spend every day in the precious scriptures, which are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible is for you, but the Bible is not about you. It's all about Jesus. And so listen to these words as we close. It's a wonderful poem. It says, I find my Lord in the Bible wherever I chance to look. He's the theme of the Bible, the center and heart of the book. He is the Rose of Sharon. He is the Lily Fair. Wherever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there. He, at the book's beginning, gave to the earth its form. He is the ark of shelter bearing the brunt of the storm. The burning bush of the desert, the budding of Aaron's rod. Wherever I look in the Bible, I see the Son of God. The ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky, the scarlet cord in the window and the serpent lifted high, the smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook, the face of my Lord I discover wherever I open the book. He's the seed of the woman, the savior virgin born. He's the son of David whom men rejected with scorn. His garments of grace and of beauty, the stately Aaron deck, he's a priest forever for he is Melchizedek. Lord of eternal glory, whom John the Apostle saw. Light of the golden city, lamb without spot or flaw. Bridegroom coming at midnight, for whom the virgins look. Wherever I open my Bible, I find my Lord in the book. May we cherish God's word. May we love his law. And may we ask by the Spirit's help to be pleasing to him in our obedience. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to close in song, singing of the excellencies of Christ who finished the work upon the cross. Father, we thank you for what we have in our Savior, who apart from him, we have nothing. We have condemnation, we have wrath, we have darkness and despair. 
But Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you have come not to abolish the law, but to perfectly fulfill it. We thank you that from the cross you uttered to tell us that it is finished. And we take heart and we take hope in your finished work, in your righteousness that is imputed to us by faith. We receive it this morning. And Lord, as we're walking in sanctification, may we by the spirit of God be strengthened by your spirit to obey. Lord, we thank you for these deep and abiding truths. Lord, may we grow deeper in them, we pray in Christ's name. And for the sake of the gospel, we ask this. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast, King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.